want to uh, bring your attention to the um, Christmas trees that are my left and right. Um, they're not your typical Christmas tree. These are Oper- Operation Christmas Child uh, shoebox trees uh, that was uh, done as a, a product of our uh, packing party uh, yesterday. And uh, I'm not sure what the final count was uh, of the shoeboxes. Um, I know we, the bell was rung when there was over 100, uh, so I'm not entirely sure what the numbers are. Uh, but we, uh, this is something where our church has been uh, working on and doing. And I know the uh, Hispanic church as well, they've been collecting funds uh, for the operations of Christmas Child. So the, uh, the Spanish church has been doing something similar. Uh, but uh, we want to send these off in prayer. We're going to get ready to, uh, to, to ship them or have them uh, transported to the Samaritan's Purse. Uh, where, of course, they will uh, go all over the world uh, and blessing a child somewhere. And so we want to uh, just recognize that this is a, a gift, an offering uh, to the Lord for the Lord's work. Uh, we pray that churches can make the most of it uh, wherever they're at um, and uh, see this as a, a way to bring attention to our God and Savior, the giver of all good gifts. Uh, and so that's uh, something we certainly want to pray for in this. So uh, if you will pray with me before we get started uh, for these shoeboxes, and uh, perhaps you had a part in that. Uh, uh, if you didn't, you might be able to do something today. I don't know uh, when they're uh, taking these off, so I think we're kind of at the, at the end of that. So uh, we certainly want to pray for that. So let's do so now at this time. Father, we do thank you that every good gift that we have, we can contribute it to you as the giver of all good gifts. And Lord, we live in a place and country where we have more stuff than we know what to do with. Lord, we've got businesses start up to deal with their extra stuff. And yet, Lord, there are people around this world that have very little. And Lord, you have put us in this best blessed place and given us incredible blessings so that we can be a blessing for your namesake. And so Lord, these are just small things, but Lord, we pray that you would bless it and bring fruit out of these things. Lord, we offer it as just an expression of worship to you, as a little expression of the worship uh, that we owe to you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would send these and arrange these, Lord, to go to the people of your choosing that can bring the greatest good and greatest glory to your name, that hearts would be transformed, that young lives would be uh, encountering with the truth of who you are through these boxes and those who minister to them, Lord. God, we pray all along the way for those who will be working in the transportation. We thank you for them, Father, that they are going to be doing things that we would not do or could not do. Lord, we pray that you bless those efforts and work. Lord, we thank you for the gift that was given to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, we pray that in this moment that you would help us to center our heart and mind on the greatest gift that can be. Lord, help us not to have our heart and mind centered on trinkets and centered on side issues, 
God, I pray that in this word that you would take our mind and our heart wherever it is even now and just bring us by faith through your spirit, Lord, and in your word to that which is most critical for eternity. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our Coffee Cup series, and uh, this is going to be perhaps maybe the, the last text that we'll take probably a couple weeks uh, dealing with uh, in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, specifically, you probably know Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. Uh, you see this on various Christian apparel, coffee mugs. Uh, be anxious for nothing, uh, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, that's one worth memorizing. It's, it's worth quoting to yourself. Uh, but I think that we perhaps might lose something if we don't see the context of where that verse is found. And so my, my prayer this morning, my goal this morning is to start with Philippians 4 uh, and looking, leading up to the verses in 6 and 7. Uh, but I think, Lord willing, next, next Sunday I will focus on uh, verses like uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 uh, as well. Uh, that is a, a gem uh, that is worth knowing. Uh, and so all these things, of course, worth knowing. Uh, and then we'll be uh, uh, leading up into Thanksgiving. And this is a great passage for us to consider as we uh, get into Thanksgiving. Did you know that Thanksgiving is the oldest American holiday that we have? Uh, it is established before Christmas became a holiday celebrated officially in America. Uh, and so this goes back to the days of George Washington, formalized by Abraham Lincoln, uh, of course, in the 1800s, but uh, uh, as well introduced by George Washington uh, as far as a national recognition. Uh, state celebrated on different days until it was recognized in one day. Um, and then, of course, it goes back to the Puritans. It is probably, uh, as far as the essence of what uh, Thanksgiving about, the most Christian idea of celebrating, uh, of that of Thanksgiving. And so for that reason, uh, the staff well know that I have certain biases against Christmas music uh, on, in the office in, uh, uh, in November uh, until Thanksgiving goes away. And I'm trying to figure out what to do with the choir as they have to practice uh, for Christmas. Uh, and so you still hear that in the backdrop. And, uh, and so I'm somewhat of a Thanksgiving snob, if you will. Uh, and it's worth being a Thanksgiving snob about. So we want to just talk about this, and I think it's very appropriate for us uh, in this season, in this time, to consider what Philippians 4 has to say. Uh, because in the very first verse, it talks about this idea of being firm and, and having a steadiness about us uh, that's based on some of these truths. And I think that in light of all that's happened uh, in our country, we especially need to know what gives us a firm outlook and disposition in our life. I, you know, one of the things uh, that, uh, that I do, and many, many of you know, I, I uh, sometimes will ride a skateboard. I know at my age you shouldn't do things like that. Uh, and, and so I have uh, relegated my skateboard riding to the flatlands that you find along the Noose River Trail. I avoid the hills, and very good reason why I avoid the hills, uh, because you go faster than I can run, uh, on a skateboard going down a hill. And when that happens, I know I'm in trouble. And there's nothing quite like the fear of on being on a skateboard going faster than you know you should be, and there is no good way out of it. So you're either going to crash 
Are you going to just try to ride it out and hope that you survive? Um, but one of the things that can happen is that if you go too fast, the wheels on the skateboard can start to wobble. And that is especially frightening uh, when uh, you have concrete separ- uh, between you, air, and your skin, uh, and it starts to wobble, and it's faster than you can run. And my only hope, then, is to get off the road into some grass and hope there's no rocks and trees. That's only happened about two or three times in the last six, seven years. Uh, thus, I stay in the flatlands. But there is a point where sometimes life can be like that, where it's going so fast, things are happening, that we feel like there is a wobbling underneath our foundation, and it seems like the only uh, possible recourse that can happen in our life is that we crash and burn, or somehow we ride it out and hope to God that we get to a safe place, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, sometimes physically. It may be that in our nation we feel that way, that there is perhaps a wobbling. Um, I very intentionally do not make our worship services and what I do uh, political in candidates, uh, mainly because I believe that our church is to be about something bigger than a Republican or Democrat platform, and if I make it political, then I will alienate those who need to hear a gospel message. So I appreciate that as a, as a church that, for the most part, we do that. We try to do that. But I'm also very conscious that there are uh, mixed feelings, uh, even in a group like this. Uh, and so, with this, I, I want to bring your attention to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, in chapter uh, 4, verse 1, is where we're going to start. And uh, I think we're going to go ahead and, and read through verse 8, though I, I do not expect that we will get to the end of that. Uh, so in honor of this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this together. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Udia and I treat Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You may be seated. The book of Philippians is helpful for us to keep in mind a little bit of the context. This was a church that Paul founded, uh, and if you read in the books of Acts, you'll see some amazing stories of how it was found. Uh, first, talking to a group of women on the riverside, Lydia, seller of purple, 
Uh, but then from that uh, first group of disciples, uh, well, Paul gets into trouble uh, and ultimately gets put into prison. Uh, and there, in prison, uh, he uh, and Paul starts rejoicing and praising God. And as they rejoice and praise God, God so responds with favor by causing an earthquake to occur so that uh, the cells, uh, the, the, the binds are broken in uh, a dark, d- damp cell. Uh, the prison jail keeper is going to take his own life because all that he lived for is about to go away. And Paul stops him, shares the gospel with him and his family. Their family finds a new identity where it's no longer being a jail keeper, but now their identity is found in right relationship with Christ. From that, you see this church started. Now, as Paul writes this letter uh, in prison, we think about uh, 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 from prison. Uh, so in other words, at this time, Paul is living his life, and once again, he finds himself in another prison, and he's writing a, a letter of encouragement, really a thank you letter for their support, financially and otherwise, uh, and hears about issues going on in the church, and so writes this letter, and so as you read these things, uh, when you see the word rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice, I want you to imagine that Paul, as he writes this out, is doing so with a, a chain being dragged a car across his parchment as he writes rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. You need to know from whence this letter comes. This is not uh, an, a heated comfortable situation that Paul writes, nor is he writing to people who are in comfortable situations. Sometimes we dismiss this out of hand because it sounds ludicrous to rejoice the Lord always. But I think you need to know from where the letter is coming from to understand that this is meant to apply exactly in every situation. So, when you see verse 1, Therefore my brothers, whom I hope and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus, and the Lord, my beloved. So when you read that, first you need to know what was said before this, because he's appealing to this, and he's saying, I want you to remember this, to, to stand firm, uh, to keep the, the, the wheels from wobbling in your life. What do you hold on to? And so you go back to what he said right before this in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would say to you, dear brother and sister in Christ that lives in America in the week after the election, stand firm because our citizenship is in heaven and we are not awaiting a presidency, we are awaiting a Savior. Let that be that which guards us, holds us, and gives us an anchor to keep the wheels from wobbling. As a church... We are not those who walk forward in fear or in elation because of a president. But we have a more sure hope. This is what Paul is having us to hold on to. Who, this Lord Jesus, will transform our lowly body to be like this glorious body, his glorious body, by the power enables him even to subject all things to himself. We've got a lot to look forward to, is basically what he's saying. Therefore, hold firm in that. And so he continues on. What does that look? When that's your hope, what do we do? Well, let's look at some reasons why we can exhibit joy in times of tension. Uh, 
There's quite a few here. There's some commands he gives us first uh, as we read this. Uh, In verse 2, he starts taking these big ideas about what our hope is, and he starts, well, taking a lot of power and using a rifle and pointing in on specific people. Uh, He starts naming names, you know. A lot of you have a fear that I'm just going to start naming names, and that's why it's it's tough being part of my family, because sometimes I do. Uh, But here, Paul, he's naming names, and he's doing it in a letter that God says, let's remember that. Let's remember that. Let's keep this as uh, for future, for centuries that churches can look back and read these names uh, and, and, and know the situation. So he says, two women, I treat Udia and I treat Synecdoche, to agree in the Lord. So what can we discern from this? First of all, we do not know what the situation is. We don't know what these two women were disagreeing about. I think it's good that way because now we can apply it across the board to any issue that comes up in our church to appeal to this passage and to remember this passage. Uh, But we also know that this was large enough an issue for them to write to Paul about and say, Paul, help us out here. Uh, And and Paul had heard about a disagreement that was happening between these two women. Uh, Then he goes on and explains, verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Sometimes there are issues and disagreements within two believers that they need help with. And so he's appealing to them. This is also why it's good to be a part of a church that we need the uh, uh, help of a third person or maybe a group of people to say, look, you know, here's the main things and here are the the points of disagreements and this is how it relates to the main things. So let's keep the main things part of our heart, part of our focus as we continue on. And so it also encourages me that if it happened in the church of Philippi, I shouldn't be too shocked when it happens in Green Pines. Um, None of us as a church, get to such a level of maturity where these things don't happen, and these do happen, as you know. So we appeal to some of the same sources that Paul appeals to here. So help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. And so we know this is not a question of their salvation. There are sometimes that there are people who are in faith, in Christ, looking at it from the gospel's perspective, but when they get to the times of actually doing the work, whether it's an emphasis of their spiritual gifts, how God's made them, their experiences, they emphasize different things, they don't always see eye to eye. And sometimes that's not always attention. Sometimes it's a compliment where there's meant to be uh, two different perspectives or three or four different perspectives. Sometimes it's something we just have to recognize. But every once in a while, you come across a, a situation where people just don't work well together. And in that day and time, there wasn't the second Baptist of Philippi. You know? Because that would be our solution, right? All right, it's simple, let's just avoid it. That wasn't an option. And so Paul is saying, let's look at this, help them. And I think as we read verse 4, 5, 6, we're going to see, man, there's some application. This, This peace of God that guards our heart and mind isn't just talking about an internal sense of rest. 
All right? A lot of times that's what we want it to be. We, we probably memorized it as such because we thought, man, when I go to that hospital room, uh, I want to be able to pray, and I want to have a sense of peace in my heart and life, and I think there is some application of this, but when I look at this in context, this is really talking about peace among the people. That can happen. So, we keep on reading. What's the first command as he thinks about this conflict that's happened between two women in their church? This Big idea, the big power solutions. He doesn't talk about the methods of reconciliation. He says, I want to bring attention to some big things. First, remember the person of Christ and rejoice. The words he used here is in verse 4 and 5 are intensive in their verb forms. They're emphatic. They're emphatic. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice so when you see it repeated uh you know the writers didn't always have the ability to change the font and put it in all caps you know so they would repeat it but if they did this would be in all caps rejoice in the lord this is something that is emphatic for us to do always and so when we have that phrase always it says no matter in the circumstances what it is in our life the solution is not a change of circumstances the solution is a change of perspective a change of attention and so the emotions that are given in our life are revealed are given to us as a indication of what we're centered on Always know that. Emotions are God-given things. And when I see an emotion in my life, I need to look back and realize, why do I have this emotion? When there is an elation, what is the source? When there is anger, why why am I anger? If there's jealousy, what is it that my heart is being centered on that creates this jealousness? If there's an anxiousness, then why is it if there's a fear? These are all God-given emotions. You can see God has allowed us to experience these things, but they are given to us to indicate something. So, uh, last few weeks, we had a car that had a check engine light on. Then was accompanied by other signs. You know, sometimes when that check engine light comes on, you tell yourself, okay, we just need to tighten the gas cap. Right? And it'll go away. And then it was like, well, you know, it doesn't really count until it's there for a full week. <laughs> you know? And then, then when another light comes, I'm like, oh, okay, something's going on. And, and, and so at some point, you have to take it to someone that has a diagnostic machine and says, tell me why this is going on. I wish it would tell me a little bit more information. But it doesn't. It just says check engine or maintenance soon. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, then $500 later, we figure out the problem. Um, you need to understand that the emotions in our life are those little signs on our dashboard. Check your heart. Check your center. If you don't like the emotion, you know that the emotion is, a, is something that God is warning against, then perhaps maybe we need to see why it's there. And so he's saying simply, rejoice in the Lord, always remember the person of Christ. And so joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart when King Jesus is in residence. They say that you know whether or not the queen is there uh, in England, whether the, the flag is flown. 
When joy is flown in our life, it is a sign that Jesus is king over the circumstances in our life. And so he's saying rejoice in the Lord always. Let him be the king of our heart. Romans chapter 12, verse 12 says that we're to rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, continually steadfast in prayer. Psalm 511, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who also love your name be joyful in you. Psalm 9, verse 1 and 2, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When disharmony persists, the rejoicing is often dismissed. And so he's saying to these two ladies and to the church as a whole, that one of the ways of dealing with this is to rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice in every circumstance. Why should I do that? Because in the frustration of dealing with other people, it, it exposes several things in my heart. Uh, one, am I living for the praise of people? Or am I living for this objective that this person is in the way of? And, and so it can expose some of these things. And so I rejoice in that now I can see how can I trust God in circumstances that are not what I want them to be. Remember what trusting God, the faith is the evidence of things not seen, of things not yet revealed, hoped for. And so it allows me to exercise some faith, not my mind, and that God will work in all these things. Well, let me keep on reading. There's something else here. Verse 5 is, is kind of fascinating. My translation says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Your reasonableness. I would want to change the word just because I can't say it well. <laughs> reasonableness. <laughs> Your translation might say something else. Uh, I think the King James uh, translation says, let your moderation be known. What on earth does moderation have to do with reasonableness? That seems like a, a, a kind of a departation, isn't it, from these two very different things. The, the problem that we have is that this word uh, cannot translate into just one word uh, that we've got. And then you see, well, what's the reason, uh, what's the reason for it? Because the Lord is at hand. Some translations might say gentleness. What on earth does gentleness have to do with God's nearness? What does reasonableness have to do with God's nearness? What does moderation have to do with God's nearness uh, one way of understanding this word um, looking at the what the original word is a radical moderation <laughs> radical let your radical moderation be known to everyone that's interesting isn't it uh, okay so here's just a, a stab at this um, this gentleness, willingness to make room, willingness to yield, not stubborn, not inflexible, a sweet reasonableness. Let that be. Uh, and so uh, you make room for others. You make room for others. I, I, 
yesterday I was in a crowded situation. We were uh, in a, a tournament watching others, and, then, and there's a lot more people than there were seats. Uh, my daughter was able to get a seat. They made room for her, and, and somehow the group that was there around her decided that they ought to sit there too, and they made room somehow uh, for me to sit, and it was a little cramped for a little while. To make room for someone. This, this, this idea of moderation this idea of reasonableness that you see here in this text, what exactly is this? This radical moderation, and what does it have to do with the nearness of God? Well, first of all, it's understanding that what we are to be really passionate about is God. His purpose. His intention. In fact, you see this same word in describing the leadership qualities of pastors and deacons, First Timothy 3, this gentle, this reasonableness. The things you get passionate about are the things that pertain to God's mission. And so consequently, there is an evenness, a, a moderation of things that are lesser. Um, you know, John Newton described this he had a little summary of this portion, and he wrote this. John Newton was the one, of course, who wrote Amazing Grace. He says, if you understand the grace of God, it makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. Let me say that again. If you understand the grace of God, it makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. I think that Jesus uh, kind of hinted at this. Uh, alluded to this in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he had sent out his disciples to go out, and they had great success in ministry. They were able even to cast out demons uh, as they went out separately apart from Jesus Christ. They came back elated, excited. I mean, energy levels were pumped and ramped up. And Jesus responds to them in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, with this interesting phrase, he's asking them, how did it go? And basically, like, we were blown away. We were even to cast out demons. Even the daemon, demons are subject to us. And Jesus gets them in his sights, and he says this. Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they're pumped up. They're seeing victories left and right. And God's saying, that's not where your emotional seat should be. But isn't that a good thing? I mean, after all, casting out demons? I mean, <laughs> that ministry has left the church. Someone uh, had a pastor ask me about deliverance ministers. There's someone that was being uh, demonized. And it's like, Pastor, do you know of anyone that deals with this? Like, no. No, I do not. Um, who wants to start up that ministry in our church? <laughs> All right. But nonetheless, here Jesus is saying, These, this is what's happening. But don't rejoice in that. And even that's a godly, God-given thing. It's a ministry. It brings uh, great things to the kingdom. But it's God, uh, through Jesus, is saying, that's not where our emotional seat's at. This is a word to me as a minister, as a pastor. My emotional seat isn't whether or not I did a great sermon and everyone was crying at the altar. 
that's not, Jesus said, no, that's not where it's at. Keep the center, the center. And the center to the disciples is, praise God, your name is written down in the book of life. Don't ever get over your salvation. When we start getting too excited about things done in the kingdom, then the fact that we are in the kingdom, we have become off-center. And our emotions will reveal it. And it makes us much more vulnerable to the hiccups of dealing with other people. You see, we really only have one common bond, and that is the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ and His Word. That we are saved by God's grace. If as a church we move away from that as a center, then there will be nothing but strife around us. And so he's saying to these two women, he's saying to the church in general, look, let your sweet reasonableness be known to all, for the Lord is near. You see now where that comes in? Why is it important that the Lord is near? Because that's what we get excited about. That's where our heart gets pulled. God it is amazing that even in this room, you're here? I mean, you know who I am. I know them. I know them. And yet you're here? We walk away rejoicing not whether or not a song was sung or done in a certain way or the sound was just right or the, the room was just so we walk away rejoicing because, God, you are near. You're near. Let your sweet reasonless, your moderation, your gentleness, let it be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. <laughs> Get that in check. What's the greatest thing that can happen today? God, you're near. You're near. And then we keep on reading. It says, Be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. So we're going to remember the proximity of Christ and relax. That's the second point for those of you who are wanting to write something down. Remember the proximity of Christ and relax. That's something my sister used to tell me. Because um, every once in a while I have a little bit of perfectionism that comes out. I've pretty well killed it all um, by now. But there's still some parts. And I remember my sister just saying, you just need to relax sometimes. And now I say that to some of my kids. You just need to chill out. Not all that's cracked up to be. Keep it on the main thing. We'll keep on going. Not only do we remember the proximity of Christ and relax, we remember the power of Christ and request. Remember the power of Christ and request. So be anxious for nothing. Uh, anxious is the word divided mind. Don't be divided about anything. To be in all directions. Um, it is to meditate on the circumstances. The old English word from where we get this is to strangle Worry. The word worry is from the old English word to strangle. Isn't that great? 
For those of you who like to worry, you're strangling yourself. Uh, some people say, well, you know, I can't ever meditate. I, I, I just not me. I, I don't memorize things. I, I just don't. That's not my cup of tea. But I would say to you, all of you, meditate. And worrying is nothing but meditating on all the bad circumstances that could happen. And so he's saying, be anxious for nothing. G. Campbell Morgan said, what makes you think your big things are big things? <laughs> You've got to ask yourself that sometimes. What makes you think it's such a big thing anyway? Now, I want you to understand something. So far, we're dealing with commands. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Command number one. No, command number two. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And now this is the third command done in the negative. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. And he gives the alternate to that. This is a command of God. So you need to understand that if you are set on, yeah, I understand, Pastor, but you don't know who I am. This is just how I am. Okay, fine. You're a sinner. Okay? And I'm in the same boat as you, but you need to call for what it is. Don't call it your disposition. Don't call it your genetic makeup. Don't say you just inherited it. You're just a sinner. For you never deal with it. You've got to call for what it is, what God calls it. This is a command not to be anxious about anything, not to worry about anything, but to have an alternate uh, uh, attitude and action, and that is to pray. So we're going to replace this anxiety with a general prayer, uh, but in all this, he kind of lists three different words for prayer, uh, three different titles for it. Um, it says, and everything by, by supplication, prayer, supplication, let your request be made known to God. Three different ways of saying the same thing. Give it to God. Talk to God about it. That, that, this is what it's all, I mean, you can talk about general and specific and kind of try to differentiate those words. But when it's all said and done, you need to talk to God about this. All right? Uh, so what does that mean when you talk to God about this? Because I think a lot of us sometimes just sanctify our anxiety. I'm going to worry to God. And you walk away, and you're still worried. And you feel somehow that you did it better because you worried to God. What does this mean to talk about it with God? Well, the key in that is what's said there in all these things, with thanksgiving, let your request made, made known to God. So as you talk to God, you are going to be very intentional to say, I've got to thank God in this. How can you do that? It is not to say, I'm going to, in my prayer, think about all the possible good outcomes that can happen in this situation, and I'm going to pray for that and thank God for that, that I believe in advance that God's going to do. First of all, you don't know if God's going to do that. So what does this mean? It is to, in your prayer, list out all the possible scenarios that comes to your mind. Every single one of them, good, bad, ugly. You know what all could happen. God, if this thing works out like this, this could happen, or this could, and I could end up in this way. You think of every single one of them. And every single one of them, you trust in that possible scenario that God is still good. Even in the worst possible outcome. And you believe that not only is God good, but that somehow, someway, you are going to trust him that God is going to use the worst case scenario for his good. 
and you believe that when God does that, He's going to use it to transform us into Christ's likeness, even in the worst outcome. And then you have to be resigned to say, I want that more than the good outcomes. This is a mental exercise that we go through in prayer. That much of what we do, sometimes you see Jesus struggling in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Other times he resurrects a man with just barely even an outward statement. And he, that he said because he wanted other people to be built up in faith. But why did he wrestle so much in the Garden of Gethsemane? Is this, this understanding that in the possible scenarios, that God is good, and I'm going to trust in that, and I'm going to believe in that and hope in that. And so he walks away saying, Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. This cup cannot be passed, taken away from me, then so be it, God. It's to pray the same way Jesus prayed, to say, God, if that cup, I, I don't want that cup, but if that cup comes, God, I still believe that you're working in this, and I'm going to thank you in advance by faith for what you will do, even if I don't see all the outcomes of it in my lifetime. You understand what I'm saying now? It's not just saying, I want this outcome, and now I'm going to take uh, the resources and name of God and apply it to my desired outcome. That's what you call taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. Okay? But believing that in all the scenarios, that God is at work. Not one of those scenarios has God left his throne on, and he will work in every single one of them. Therefore, you thank God for what God's going to do. So consequently, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <laughs> when you are under the sovereignty of of God, then you will reap the benefits of being in his kingdom, and that includes God's peace. God's peace. You have to understand, God's in this for your good. God is for you, and all of his power is for you. I was just reading a little bit ago of just um, some of the manufacturers that are, are out there, um, some of them are trying to operate according to a Christian vision for the marketplace. In fact, that's a, uh, a name of a book uh, looking at the, the Christian vision of, of a marketplace. What's good for the market, common, what is common good for the marketplace. And they bring out one example of um, Mattel. Uh, specifically, their division that makes Hot Wheels. You know, the car. Uh, so this is done in China um, where it's being made. And uh, I don't know what you think of when you think of manufacturers in China, but I suspect that for most of us, we think sweatshops. Um, it's got to come to our attention at some point uh, down that road. But Mattel has wanted to work with a strong commitment to a, a good for the, the workers. And so those that produce the Hot Wheels line in China look nothing like the type of Chinese sweatshops reported by the news media. Work is designed in such a way that employees rotate through various stations rather than performing the same repetitive task. Factory workers are also housed in facilities that rival any modern dormitory in China. They enjoy air-conditioned ping-pong tables and karaoke machines. 
whatever floats the boat, you know. Uh, I think about that, and I think, here's a company. They're learning to take care of their employees so that they can make Hot Wheel cars. What do you think God's going to do with those in his kingdom? That are working for his kingdom? They're saying, I want to live for God and, and his vision for this world. Do you think God's going to take care of them? I mean, if Mattel can do that, cannot God, the creator of all, who by which we judge love by and righteousness by and justice by, cannot God also deal with us and understand what our needs are? Sometimes we may not understand how those needs flesh like flesh out, just like my four-year-old or a four-year-old may not understand it when I tell him, you can't eat that bug. They can't see the big picture. But the gap between us and God is greater than a four-year-old and a, and a 42-year-old. There are some times when God will put a hand on things and say, no, you're just going to have to trust the big picture here. You can't see the big picture, but you're going to have to trust. But we do know that God has shared with, with us what we need to know, that he is working for our good. And so we, we, we pray, remember the power of Christ, we confess these things, and we give them to God, and worry flees at the throne room of Jesus. Worry cannot exist in the throne room of Jesus. Because worry is by default saying, God, I don't think you can. I don't think you know. I don't think you should. I, you know, and he's constantly the, just undermining the ruling of Jesus Christ. At the throne room of Jesus, worry has to flee. Most Christians are being crucified on a cross between two thieves. Yesterday's regrets and tomorrow's worries. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but empties today of its strength, according to Corey Ten Boom. There's numerous passages that speak about this. Isaiah 26, 3. That will keep him in perfect peace, who trusts in God because his mind is stayed on God. Isaiah 26, 3. Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you as he did this in response to don't be anxious about tomorrow. All Christians have peace with God, but they do not always realize the peace of God. Peace not from circumstances, but beyond human empirical proof. This is where the peace between people comes into play. When you have the peace of God in the midst of troublesome circumstances, even between a Udi and Sinetiki. Keep how we don't name anyone that. Even between people that are troubled, that they can have the peace of God when they surrender it to God and live under his ruling with it. And the peace of God enables them, empowers them to have peace with God's people. Well, there's more to be said, and not the time to say it. Lord willing, we will continue this next Sunday. But I would just bring to your attention, why is that song, Be Thou My Vision? I heard someone uh, practicing earlier this morning. Why is that such a great song? 
Let me just read a couple lines. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me. Save that thou art, thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. This is not a metaphorical song. This is to say literally, let him be my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping. God, I need my mind stayed on you. Let you be the main thing. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father and I thy true son. Thou and me dwelling and I with thee one. And we never get over that. Never get over that. Be thou my battle shield, sword for the fight. Be thou my dignity, thou my delight, thou my soul shelter, thou my high tower. Raise thou me heavenward, O power of my power. God, be my identity. Be that which I'm marked by. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. Thy king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Dear Republican, win the presidency if you want to. Democrat, win the presidency if you want to. My heart is given to Jesus Christ, and he is my treasure. That is the mainstay of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And we have been too swayed by the idolatry of politics, and we are saturated with it. We need to surrender that. Because it can take us off course and that's just one thing anytime you've got your emotions checked and you realize there's an angst in your heart there's a reason why follow the train that your emotion is revealing and see what's driving that emotion and ask god to help you to see is there something i'm holding on to that i'm taking more joy in than the fact that my name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. One of the reasons why we sing what we sing is so that we'll sing about something worth singing. And to check your heart, if our heart and mind is not in the song, the problem is not the song, most of the time. The problem may very well be what we're bringing to it. I'm going to ask that as we, we pray, that we ask God to make the main thing our main thing. That our great joy is that God has chosen to forgive us and put us in his kingdom. Can we do that? Father.